hormone harmony is not just a supplement for women going through perimenopause, menopause, or postmenopause. It's become a phenomenon. Women cannot stop talking about it on social media. A bottle of hormone harmony is sold every 24 seconds. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. That means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it shows. Hormone Harmony contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now, here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. So, Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any women with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it, but it's perfect for those with those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. Hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts and low moods, poor sleep and feeling tired all the time, occasional bloating and gas, no desire to be in bed next to someone, if you know what I mean. Yeah, Hormone Harmony can help with all of these things. And the biggest benefit feeling like myself again. And that's what women mention over and over in the reviews. There are over 17,000 reviews for Hormone Harmony. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use our code, which is the acronym of the podcast, T-S-N-O-T-Y-A-W at checkout. That's the podcast acronym at checkout at happymammoth.com calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray, and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. This is just a reminder about the courses we've got coming up. On the 5th of April, Carly is hosting an Identifying and Cultivating Your Author Brand webinar at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. On the 13th of April, I will be hosting a Leaning into Specificity webinar between 7 and 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time. And then on the 28th of April, Cece will be hosting a Writing Tension webinar at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. To sign up for those, go to my website, biancamaray.com, and look under the Courses tab. And then you've all been asking me for another writing group matchup or a beta reader matchup. And so I've decided to do the great beta reader matchup. Go to my website, biancamaray.com, look under the Beta Reader tab to get more information about how to sign up for that. Sign up for that is open between the 22nd of March and the 5th of April, although I do plan to host them monthly. 
Hi everyone, welcome to another Box with Hook segment. Today we're kicking it back old school where Carly and Cece will both be speaking about the same three queries. So we're going to get Carly to kick us off there with the first query letter. Dear Carly and Cece, I've been following your podcast with great interest and would love to benefit from your wisdom regarding my latest project. The old monster, complete at 75,000 words, is a man called Ove meets Joe Hill's heart-shaped box supernatural thriller. Isaac, a 93-year-old World War II survivor, cannot hear children. It's a type of selective hearing he had since the war. He considers this a blessing. Yet when, following a seizure, Isaac meets Will, a newly orphaned 13-year-old at the local county hospital, he finds there's more to his strange affliction than he suspected. A ghost has been haunting the hospital for many years now, killing male patients via induced heart attacks. The ghost pounces on Isaac, transporting him back to 1941 to a time when he was a partisan fighting the Nazi occupation of Ukraine, and into events leading up to a dark secret Isaac has been suppressing all his life. The murder of his infant son when Isaac was 14, and a curse that took his ability to interact with children. Inexplicably, Will travels alongside Isaac into a body of an old peasant, a witness to those events. This allows Isaac to hear the boy, both in the 1941 memories and in the present, but as the ghost forces the two of them to relive Isaac's crime, Will gets progressively sicker, leading Isaac to a dreadful realization. If he cannot finally face his traumatic past, the boy whose company he's come to treasure will die. Eugene Polonsky lives in Seattle with his wife, two boisterous boys, and a floppy-eared coonhound. His short stories have appeared in Amarola Magazine and Catterskill Basin Literary Journal. Thank you for your time and consideration, Eugene Polonsky. Thank you so much, Carly. Now, in our conversation with Emmy Nordstrom Higdon last week, they suggested that authors not refer to themselves in the third person in query letters and that they write them in the first person. Is this something that you have an opinion on or, or not really before you go into the actual critique? I don't have a strong opinion either way. I mean, no matter what, we know that you're writing the query letter. So I do like I in the query letter, like author bio. But eventually your author bio in the back of your book is going to be written in third person. So probably what you have on your website and that sort of thing. So it doesn't bother me either way. I have no real opinion. Okay, great. So what did you think of the actual query letter? Okay, so the title, The Old Monster, is just in, you know, capitalizing the first letter of each word. I like it when titles are all caps because it stands out the most. So I would just focus on just making sure it's your title is the loudest thing on the page. And for me, that just means either all uppercase or bold or just some way that we know that your book is the star of the show, not the comps. The other thing is, so this is pitched as a man called Ove meets Joe Hill's heart-shaped box supernatural thriller. So it doesn't really say what genre this book is, I guess, unless they're trying to say that this book is a supernatural thriller, because to me, this is a horror novel. And I'm very curious to hear what Cece thinks as well. This is a fun episode for us to kind of be both talking about this. To me, this is a horror novel. (laughs) And if there's going to be sympathy for a killer, and I think Cece's read this one too, but I'm reading Notes on an Execution by Danya Kakafka right now. So if there is sympathy towards a killer, that could maybe be a good like literary comp. But I, I'm not gonna lie, I kind of gasped at this one. The way that I read this pitch is that this person became a father at the age of 14 and killed his own infant. Is that what CC is that what you're reading? That's what I'm reading. So we're talking about something pretty dark and horrific. And so that it has to be a horror novel for me. Cece, what do you think? So I actually, that was one of my questions because the query letter says a dark secret 
the murder of. And so I am led to believe that he is the murderer, right, of his own child. Yeah. Is if, if that's the case, that's pretty gruesome. So yeah, horror, yeah. especially because there's another boy now who might die. Right? Yeah, and there's a line here that says, but as the yeah. ghost forces the two of them to relive Isaac's crime, so no matter what, we know he committed a crime. So I'm assuming that the murder of this infant was the crime. That's what I'm thinking. So if CC and I are way off base, this person needs to rewrite this query letter. And if we are on base, we just need to specify this is a horror novel. But yeah, CC, go ahead with your thoughts. I agree. I, I feel like Everyone who listens to the podcast knows that I never mind dark and gritty. And even I, when I read this, I was like, wait, does he kill his own child? And I feel like this is one of the things where we want to be really clear about one way or another. If this is your story, we are by no means saying like, change it. Not at all. Just I had a question about it. And I don't think I want to have a question about it. I think I want to have an opinion on it one way or another. So definitely tweak that. Make sure that you're giving us exactly what we need to know. I thought you did a really good job of leading up to the climax in terms of as Will progressively gets sicker, leading Isaac to a dreadful realization, if he cannot face his traumatic past. But since I'm not clear on what that past is, meaning is it a different crime that led to the murder of his child by someone else? Or is it is the crime the murder? Because you are using the word murder and not like manslaughter, right? So you're saying there was intent. Anyway, so good job with the wording of the climax. I just would specify in the previous paragraph what exactly the crime was. And if it's a spoiler, that's because it's not the murder of the child. So maybe isolate these two things. Be like, this is one thing and then this is the other thing. So we're not confused. Oh, and I also really liked the mention of his floppy-eared coonhound. That was really cute. Awesome. Thank you. Carly, will you give us an indication of what was in those opening pages before you dive into that critique? All right. So we start out by meeting our main character. It's a kind of yucky weather day, like freezing rain, dishwater gray sky, that sort of thing. And he's kind of grumpily complaining that he wants to go out and get his dog some food. He doesn't believe that his dog needs dog food. He believes that his dog should eat chicken noodle soup. So he's kind of making this grumpy trek to the store. And he's kind of seeing some neighbors along the way. As I said, there's some weather, they're expecting a storm, shoveling snow, and some kid kind of launches a toboggan at him and he like kicks it and it breaks. And so he's like crushing people's, crushing young children's dreams uh, first thing in the morning. And yeah, just kind of being, kind of being a, a grumpy old man out for a walk. Perfect. Thank you. Okay. So what was your take on that? All right. So I felt emotionally, I had like an umbrella of feelings from the query letter. So I was trying to separate like my feelings about the query letter and how potentially dark this book is from the actual pages itself. But I really liked the voice. Like I love this grumpy old man voice. He might be a murderer. I might be sympathetic to a murderer. I don't know. But I really liked that that grumpy old man stuff. There were certain lines that were just, I don't know, just amusing to me said like one of these days Isaac would keel over and die on this goddamn half mile but not today just that like spitefulness of living that dark humor I just love dark humor in that sense so and and the fact that he does believe that his own dog deserves chicken noodle soup and not he said like pelleted dog food is just like funny and amusing right obviously like him being a grumpy old man to children is also darkly comedic obviously this child didn't get hurt he just like kicked this kid's sled or whatever but still very funny we also learn i forgot to mention this we also learn about his his kind of affliction that he can't hear children in that scene the fact that he kicked the kid's sled but he has no idea how the kid felt about 
that because he couldn't hear them. So I really liked the pages. I liked the voice. I just, I really felt overshadowed by the query in the sense of like, I'm dreading what's coming. I'm dreading if this man that I feel sympathetic towards is going to be a murderer. But that's like actually kind of a good thing. Like going back to Danya's novel, Notes on an Execution, like we're, if, if you guys haven't heard of this book, it's basically we're meeting a murderer on death row the day he's going to die. And we meet him through the perspective of all the women in his life. So we are starting to see like how a serial killer, or, you know, how a murderer becomes a murderer. And so I don't have a problem reading about people and all their complexities. I just, yeah, I was feeling a real push and pull here. So again, Cece, I'm so curious to hear what you thought as well. Before we go to Cece, I want to tell you my pun based on the, these opening pages. Children should be in scene and not heard. Where's, where's the drums <laughs> when you need them? <laughs> okay, Cece, I'll be handing it. across to you. Okay, I really love that. So these pages do not match the query letter at all. From what I understood, and I could be wrong, the author was going for the A Man Called Ave Vibes, which is one of my favorite books, right? Like, I love Frederick Buckman. I'm obsessed with all of his novels. And so we understand that this is a curmudgeon, right? Like, this is someone who is grumpy and disgruntled and just being someone who's calling people names, including himself, right? So that's really, really cute, I think. I'm, I, I, But I hesitate to use this word because I'm like, did he murder his child? Because that, like, I'm not going to use the word cute for someone who just murdered his child. That is where I draw the line. <laughs> but I will say that the pages are strong. The challenge for me is that, one, I don't know what this is. Like, I'm not, I'm not clear on what genre this is. And I'm just going to give you my notes as though this is similar to Bachman's novel, okay? So if that is what you want this to be, I would recommend weaving in more tension. So the author has done a good job of adding movement. He's walking to the store, of adding interaction. He is discussing something with his neighbor. He's thinking about the cashier. And then obviously we have the scene with the sled. So he has done a good job. But too much is being told to us without tension, including his affliction, right? Like this information is just being put out there. There is no fear, no desire, and it is not being conveyed through surprise. Now, if we're going to take a page out of Bachman's novel, what I would do is compare this to the first chapter of A Man Called Ave, right? Like, and in that first chapter, we have Ave, and I hope I'm pronouncing the man's name right. I don't know. I've heard all the pronunciations, but whatever. We have him buying an iPad, and he calls it an opad. And it's dialogue heavy, but with plenty of inner life in the moment. The inner life is not giving us context that's only going to be necessary five chapters down the line, or even one chapter down the line. And so that creates tension because he doesn't really know what the iPad is. He's confused. He's suspicious. He kind of drives the, the sales clerk bonkers. So I would try to tone down on the info dumpiness of the interiority and dial up the, I almost want to use the word contention, right? Like with the people that he's interacting with. Because yeah, he's being grumpy, but he has no goal. Like his goal is to get to the store, which is a cute goal because of the dog. But he's not trying to get something out of each specific person. And if he were, he would be having to put himself out there more, which would therefore be a bigger challenge and the obstacles would matter more. So I think that that would raise the tension a little bit more in this scene, which is what I think we need here. Yeah, those are my notes. Perfect. Thank you. Okay. Cece, will you read the second query letter for us? All right, let's do this. Dear Bianca, Carly, and Cecilia, after many months of editing and navigating the daunting querying process, I had the serendipitous pleasure of listening to your podcast, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. 
What a find. I appreciate how you endeavored to provide deep, honest, and constructive insights for your listeners. I value the clarity you provide to those who love and live to write. I am learning something new from you and your guests every week. I am writing to you seeking representation for my 78,000 work debut literary slash book club fiction novel, Redacted. It is a contemporary tale of two people in midlife recreating themselves as they discover who they are at their core. This novel resonates with the character development and complex plot lines of Nicholas Sparks, Safe Haven, and Caillou Hart Hemmings, The Descendants. I also enjoyed the writing voices of Alastair MacLeod and Cormac McCarthy, and I hear echoes of their styles in my work. The story centers on Lars Jorsen, a successful Toronto architect who travels back to his former hometown in rural Ontario to take care of his dying father. Single and disconnected from his family, he wants little to do with the people and traumatic memories trapped in the town. Despite this, his curiosity and interest in the architectural diversity and historical nuance of the town have always resonated within him and speak to his need for connection and meaning. In the midst of his father's passage, he unexpectedly stops into a coffee shop called Ashanti and meets a fascinating and inspiring woman who opens him up to a new way of seeing his town and the world. Thea Rose, a former lawyer, owner of the coffee shop, and transgender woman, has had an amazing life's journey. She captures his imagination and inspires and challenges Lars to face his traumatic past, and in doing so, they find love. In their journey of discovery and heartbreak, they contend with ever-complex family dynamics, death, transphobia, and injustice. From the depths of despair, they begin to forge a plan to remake themselves and build a future together. Ashanti is a story of how, when challenged, people can go beyond despair to discover ways to rebuild and evolve. It is part mystery, thriller, and love story. In this journey, the characters navigate the challenges facing trans people and examine the ways in which we tolerate injustice in the world. This is my debut novel, although I have published short fiction, have written and performed many songs, plays, and musicals. I am a retired educator and currently a therapist by day. I am and have always been a creative, inspired by infinite possibility of human potential and the beauty of language. I sincerely hope my story interests you and I would love to work with you to bring the story to the world. Warmest regards, Redacted. Great, Cece. Thank you. Will you kick us off and let us know your thoughts on the query letter? Let's do this. So, starting right from the very top, I mean, first of all, thank you for those lovely comments on paragraph one. Paragraph two. Is this literary fiction or is this book club fiction? I would specify one or the other because they are different genres and it's really important to know your genre. The other thing is that the hook or the sentence that I think is what the writer intends to be the hook, meaning the sentence that reads, the tale of two people in midlife recreating themselves as they discover who they are at their core. That's not quite specific or original enough to be a hook, in my opinion. It's not doing the work of making me feel curious. That's what a hook is supposed to do. So I would rephrase that. I would rework that and flesh out the hook here. When it comes to the comps, I don't think you need so many sentences for the comps. Like, I would pick two works that you feel best represent your story and keep it at that to really shorten this query letter because that's one of my big picture notes. This is quite long. One of the reasons why I'm saying this is quite long, 
I'm sure people have heard me say, it's okay to make it a little longer if you have to. Your story is super complex. The plot paragraph, that's the one that starts with the story centers on Lars. If you're a Kofi subscriber, you have access to our pages, so you know exactly where I am. But that paragraph, it has a lot of interiority. We understand what his interests are. Like, he loves architectural diversity. He loves the historical nuance of the town, right? I'm wondering why that's relevant here. A character's likes and dislikes, they don't really belong in the query letter. The plot belongs in the query letter. I am a big fan of inner life. Big, big fan. And yet, even I think that... There's no place for inner life in the query letter, truly. It's just not relevant. The sentences in that paragraph are quite vague. Here's an example. He meets this person, right? And she is a fascinating and inspiring woman who opens him up to a new way of seeing his town and his world. I like that she's fascinating. I like that she's inspiring. But what does that mean? How is that relevant? How does this move the story forward? This new way of seeing the world. What is this new way? How is it moving the story forward? What is the central conflict? These are questions to which I don't have the answer and I should because that's the job of a query letter. Another example. From the depths of despair, they begin to forge a plan to remake themselves and build a future together. As a person, this sounds great. As a story, it's not hitting the mark. Like, I don't know what that means. So I would rewrite this plot paragraph if I'm being super honest. It's not doing the job of making me feel curious. And then the following paragraph, the one that mentions that this is part mystery, part thriller, part love story. This got me really confused because what is the mystery? Like you cannot pitch something as a mystery if I don't know what the mystery is. I don't mean what the answer to the mystery is. That's a spoiler. I just mean like, what is the mystery? Like, for example, who killed blah, blah, blah. I don't know. That's a mystery. How is this a thriller? I did not get thriller vibes from the plot paragraph, which just makes me think that my notes of like reworking the plot paragraph are spot on. I do understand how this is a love story. So yes, I that has been made clear to me. So yeah, I would rework this. I would make sure that you're not being vague. And I'm curious to hear what Kylie thinks. Thanks, Cece. Okay, Kylie, your thoughts. I think Cece's getting at all the things I was going to get at. I mean, just kind of going over some of those those same points. So really, this is pitched as literary book club fiction, mystery thriller, and a love story. This person kind of seems like they're trying to check all the boxes. And really, it's it's kind of impossible to check every box, right? As Cece said, a mystery is who done it. A thriller is this is a page turner, right? And we're being chased. A love story, again, this is apparent between these two individuals. Literary means the writing is of super high, you know, capital L literary quality. And book club fiction means this is a book that people are going to talk about. So I just don't understand, as Cece said, how this exactly is doing all these things based on the query letter alone. I think there's a lot of really interesting things here, but everything really, to me, seems to be happening in the past. Like this amazing life journey before he met her, this is all in the past. Like I have literally no idea what's happening in the present. And I think that's the biggest problem here, right? We have so much backstory and people's likes and dislikes, and it's just really not going to carry us forward. The reality is this podcast is all about the intersection between art and commerce, right? Like my job as an agent is, are people going to pay money for this book? And so why is it unique, right? Like we're trying to figure out all of these questions. And so the query letter has to kind of position its way to show me why does somebody want to pay 30 bucks to read this? Why is somebody going to spend eight, nine, 10 hours of their time reading this? And I think that this book has a lot of potential. This does seem fascinating to me, but the way that it's being positioned to us just isn't showcasing everything it needs to. Because if this does have mystery and thriller elements of it, as Cece said, I want to know all of that. So I think there's a lot going on 
And sometimes when there's a lot going on, it just two things. It tells me that the writer still doesn't know what their own book is about, right? And they're feeling their own way through it. And through the query letter writing process, they're feeling their way out. The second is a lack of confidence, right? You're trying to divide your loyalties to say it's a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And so that lack of confidence didn't, it just didn't really say confidence to me, I guess, is, is what I'm trying to say. So, so yeah, I think we just need to kind of reposition this a little bit and, and be honest about what this book is and, and what it's trying to do. Because to me, I would rewrite this pitch just as a love story. I think that's, to me, that's what makes this book unique. So I would rewrite the whole thing framed around the love story. And if there is a Millery, <laughs> Millery mystery and thriller, if there is a mystery and thriller element to it, I want to know about that, right? Like, and I think that's why the safe haven comp really comes into play because safe haven, I've read the book, I've seen the movie, I am a Nicholas Sparks junkie. And I think that's what Nicholas Sparks does well. So if this can comp to Nicholas Sparks safe haven, we have the romance, we have somebody breathing down our neck in that kind of Nicholas Sparks way. I think that's great. So I think we can slash the literary angle. I think we can slash Alistair MacLeod. I think we can slash Cormac McCarthy. And I think we can really just focus on what is special about this book. And to me, just based on, again, these five paragraphs, I think it's the love story. Wonderful. Carly, you've created a neologism. Mystery and thriller. Miller. I love it. Cece's teaching us all the words all the time. I just want to say to the writers out there, I feel your pain when it comes to trying to figure out what the hell your work is. I wrote a book about six witches and then sent it to Cece and I was like, what the hell is this? What what genre is this? And it took Cece. It's actually better. You wrote me an email that says, what the hell is this? I'm always telling my students that they have to know what their genre is. And look at me. I don't know my own genre. Exactly. So. <laughs> I was like, there's witches and there's magic. What the hell is this? Right. So Cece, can you give us an indication of what's in the opening pages? All right. So the protagonist, that's Lars, is returning to his hometown after a long time. Right at the beginning, I thought he was just getting back. But then I found out that he'd been there for 10 days. And throughout these pages, he spends a lot of time imagining how things used to be. He walks into a coffee shop and he tells us that he is a coffee snob. And he feels that most places don't make good coffee. And he's thinking about his dad. His dad's in the hospital. He's the only one caring for his dad. No one else in the family is helping him out. And through in her life, we see him observing the people around him, moms with strollers and, and other people. And then he does order coffee. And when he orders coffee, he loves it. And that is a pleasant surprise for him. So that is what happens. There is not a lot of, of plot here. Okay. So do you want to tell us your take on it? Yes. So... First things first, this is an educational platform. We are here to offer feedback. And so I understand that we are getting drafts. That being said, there were a lot of sentences that to me felt like they, there were just words missing. His walks were a welcomed, a distraction, the reality of his father's condition. That's an example. The second clause in that same sentence has a two missing in between thoughts and drift. These are just examples. So what, as I was reading this, I couldn't get into the story because I kept going back to reread the sentences to make sure that my brain was auto-filling them in the correct way. That's just something to be mindful of. I understand that these things happen. We all do. But try to have someone else read your pages, someone who's really meticulous and really detail-oriented, so that you are not missing out on important information. And then the other thing is, I'm not sure that it's 
ideal to have Lars spend so much time imagining. And I did highlight, again, our Kofi subscribers will be able to see this. I highlighted the number of times that we got sentences like, Lars imagined the how, see this is another the here, the how the settlers hewed farms because he's imagining the past. He imagined the stories of previous generations told by those walking beneath the resplendent. He pictured children of vanished generations. He envisioned cold winters where a Model A might have waddled up the snow-packed side streets. I understand that he's probably a daydreamer, right? Like, that's fair. But it's not ideal to start your story with your character imagining and envisioning and picturing how things were different. It's just not compelling. It does not make me feel curious. It might be a taste thing, but I just don't think it's starting in the right place. So I would rethink where you're starting your novel. This, to me, is not ideal. I also recommend, so third page, paragraph that starts with history was on display in the buildings. We get a lot of description on buildings. And one of the things I wanted to talk about as a general lesson is when you are inserting descriptions into your story, no matter where you are in the spectrum of, I love writing descriptions and I do it really well, or I hate writing descriptions, I need a visual dictionary for everything, I recommend not only compressing the descriptions in the first pages because we don't need a lot of descriptions, but always making sure that you are telling it from the protagonist's specific viewpoint. So does he think the building is horrible? Make sure to make that clear. It's a monstrosity. It's an eyesore. Your character should have strong opinions, whatever they might be, about the things that we're describing. Because that means that your description is doing two things. Giving me description and adding character development. Because, you know, a person's opinion about something says a lot about them. So, again, don't think that the character should be imagining things. I also would say that at the very end, we have him thinking and we get a direct line of thought. So I would not add thoughts in quotation marks. The writer did add it in italics and quotation marks. So you don't need the quotation marks. Italics are enough. So big picture, rework the beginning because it's not making me feel curious. These are my thoughts. Thank you so much, Cece. Again, for our listeners, Grammarly is a wonderful resource to run your document through to pick up these kinds of mistakes. I'm thinking back years ago when I got a resume from someone who wrote in the resume that they were detail-oriented and they spelled detail wrong. So that made me realize perhaps they weren't quite as detail-oriented as they thought. But certainly Grammarly helps a lot in catching those kinds of things. Okay, Carly, what was your take? All right. Very similar, very similar. I mean, I felt like there was so much description, a lot of telling, you know, again, looking at these buildings, thoughts about buildings. There were a number of sentences I really liked. And so to be honest with you, I would probably scratch a lot of this. Like if this was my client, I'd be like, get rid of this paragraph, get rid of this paragraph. There are some sentences I really liked. He walked the few kilometers every day from his father's waning farmhouse to the palliative care wing of the local hospital, where he spent the last 10 days tending to his father, watching him slowly but perceptibly recede under the sheets of his hospital bed. I would probably start the book there. And then I would just be like striking through a lot of the next paragraphs. I'd be striking through a lot of the description. And then I would get us to the coffee shop faster. If there is a reason we don't want to meet this coffee shop that quickly, that's fine. But you do have it within the first five pages. So presumably our goal is to get to this coffee shop as quickly as possible. So I would be striking through most of that wander and I would just be getting to the coffee shop. There were some lines I really, really liked. You know, another one, his mind was preoccupied with the list of medications, his father's broken sleep schedule, 
that he was now adapting himself to. He felt like a new father, sleep-deprived and confused most of the time. Those really simple, just caregiving moments I found were really beautiful. And so that just, the intensity of those moments of caring for someone that's palliative, trying to balance that with like objective opinions about buildings just felt so weak to me compared to the intensity of emotion in terms of like caring for a dying parent. So that's why I think like strike through, strike through, you know, let's get to the emotional heart of this book. And that's what I would really, really love to focus on. So I think, yeah, taking a red pen to most of this, not because it's bad, just because we don't need it. Yeah. And when it comes to those descriptions, like Cece said, putting it through the lens of the character, if this character is feeling despondent about their parent being ill, if they have a kind of morose quality, perhaps personification, when it comes to the way they describe a building, like thinking of a derelict, like a human body gets at the end of its life, etc, etc, because then descriptions of the place are being permeated with this character's outlook and the emotional, how they're feeling at that moment, which makes those things more sort of vivid. Okay, Carly, will you read the last query letter for us? Here we go. Dear Agent, in her image, 62,000 Words is a speculative fiction novel about a man who attempts to revive his deceased wife in her clone. Since its birth, Charles exercises near absolute control over the child, so she would have all the desirable qualities of her predecessor without the bad. As the clone matures, however, and the gap between the memories of reality becomes tantalizingly close, he finds himself in a struggle he never foreseen. After all, what matters is not what he remembers of his dead wife, it's the things he's forgotten or buried deep down. Written in the alternating perspectives of the two main characters, the book traces the changing dynamics of their relationship, from the initial state of harmony to the first note of dissonance and the inevitable repeat of history. It is best described as the thematic hybrid of Never Let Me Go and Lolita and would be my debut novel. I currently live in South Korea, which is my home country. I plan to move back to the U.S. in 2022, where I will continue my work as a translator with a specialty in films, musicals, and lyrics. Thank you for your time and consideration. Best, Solly Bay. Awesome, Carly. Okay, what was your take on that? Okay, I will admit I have a huge, huge weakness for Never Let Me Go. It's one of my favorite books of all time. So when I see a comp with Never Let Me Go, I'm just like, can it be that good? Like, (laughs) it's like just the ultimate stakes. But it's kind of an auto request for me because like, that's how much I love it. Like if anything can get at that emotional heart of that speculative fiction with like the absolute emotionality of humanity, like to me, that's just, you know, checking so, so many many boxes. So right away, I am very, very fascinated by this. I have kind of two main overarching thoughts. And again, this is why I'm really glad we did this as a Carly and Cece episode, because I'm I'm so curious about Cece's thoughts on this. I find this a little bit clunky and kind of getting at the thesis of the goal of this book, because I'm not clear on is the goal to raise this clone as a child, as in a father-child relationship? Or is the goal to raise this child to then become the stand-in for his wife in a romantic way? And so the big question for me is, is this pedophilia, basically? (laughs) I don't know a better way to say this, because like, what is the relationship between this father character, this dad character, this husband character, raising a child, presumably in the image of somebody who he's had a romantic relationship with. So I'm very conflicted about this as a human being. (laughs) But in terms of how this is going to be explored in fiction, I'm very curious. And I could be off the mark. Again, this is why I'm very glad that Cece is here to kind of let me know if my thoughts are completely off base. But I think I need to know what this 
what this presumed book is going to be about in the sense of what this relationship and this humanity is going to explore. So that's my big picture thought. Cece, what do you got for me? <laughs> Just before we go to Cece, what makes me think you're right, Collie, is the comp of Lolita. When you're comping that, then I would definitely think that there's those sort of overtures. What exactly. Do you think, Cece? Exactly. Yeah. What I'm thinking is that Carly's going to get a whole bunch of queries with Never Let Me Go because she just said it was an auto request. And so uh, good luck with that, Carly. <laughs> okay, so um, the hook is really strong. What I got from this query letter, and yes, I had to assume a little, right? But what I got was man loses wife, man clones wife, raises wife as daughter. And what will happen once the daughter is a little older, we don't know. That's what I got. And that's a strong hook for me. Yes. Anyway, yeah. disturbing. Yeah, I agree. Like, I think it's really strong. I think I just need to know. I think I just need to know more about what's happening. Is that what you think, Cece? We just need to, we need a little bit more in this query to kind of lead us in the direction of, is this pedophilia? Is this incest? Is this neither? I don't know. I think I need to know. We need a lot more. We need a lot more. Not a little more. Like, a lot more. And case in point, the query letter is very short. It's like half a page long. So it's like 197 words or something like that. I don't know. I th I counted it, but I, and then I lost the count. So I, th I think I remember it being under 200 words. So you have space. Most writers don't have space. Most writers are, have run out of, of words by the time they get to their plot paragraphs. You have not. So flesh it out for us, please, so that we are clear on what the hook is. Like, that's what we think it is. And to be honest, we have reasons to think this, but we're not 100% sure, nor could we be with the information that you've given us. So absolutely. Another question I have is you're saying that this is written in the alternating perspectives of the two main characters, right? But then we don't get a sense of her arc. And also, I'm super curious, is it intentional that you wrote since its birth? Charles exercises near absolute. Like you, you referred to the baby as an it, right? So I'm super curious to see if that was intentional or not. But anyway, I assume it was. But if this is dual POV, I need to know what the other arc's going to be. I want two paragraphs or, or two chunks in one paragraph, however you want to do it. One for the creator and one for the creation. I think what we're referring to here that we need to know is the ick factor. How icky is the story going to be so that you can kind of prepare yourself for that, right, Carly? Yeah, I think that's kind of what I'm getting at. And I don't, there's not really much that I shy away from in terms of like what the ick factor is if I'm generally interested and weren't exploring it in a literary context. There's a lot we can explore, right? As long as it's done really well. And I'm, we'll hop to the pages, but I'll let you guys know, like, this is one of the best things I've ever read for the podcast ever. The writing is phenomenal. So I assume that this person can pull this off. And so I think we need to know, yeah, just exactly how and where the ickiness is. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, for who submitted this submission to have uh, Carly say it's some of the best writing she's ever seen, that is a huge, huge compliment. So I hope wherever you are, whether it's in the grocery aisle or wherever, you're doing a bit of a dance based on that. Okay, so Carly, will you tell us what's in those opening pages? Yeah, so it says part one, and the opening line is, Charles knew what he would give her for her first 18 birthdays, even before she was born. Like, this is brilliant writing. <laughs> um, it's so... Anyway, I'm going to gush for a second. But like, with spec fic, there's such an opportunity to just world build. And what this person is doing is like, they have their conceit so nailed down that they are able to explore through fiction, through the writing, what they need to accomplish without having to world build here. So this is what makes me think that query letter didn't do this 
book justice. And as Cece says, it needs to be longer because I think this person knows their conceit very well. And they, they know very strongly what's going to happen here. So so anyway, so we have Charles. He is talking about his wife's name's Elizabeth and him naming his baby. It's going to be Eliza. He kind of talks about that experience and the fact that his wife is dead and then he's having a baby. He talks about the, the naming and why they chose, you know, why he chose that name. He talks about the logistics a little bit of the cloning. So in this sense, Charles knew exactly what he was doing. He was under no illusion that the baby would be the reincarnation of his dead wife. In fact, he was advised to view them as biological twins born decades apart. And really, so we get a little bit of the scientific explanation, but we do also get some movement. So he's walking. I think the common thread of all these three queries is there's a lot of walking in all of these three queries. So in the evening, Charles went through walks through the city grid. He's talking about just moving through his town and his city, people that he's interacting with, meeting his wife, an interaction he had with the woman on the street. And then he goes to the nearest bar, starts talking to the bartender and kind of explaining that he's going to be a father. <laughs> and then the bartender congratulated him. And the natural question he said was that followed was a boy or a girl. And the next was if his pregnant wife would be okay with her husband coming home past midnight, reeking of booze, just having that kind of like bartender-ish interaction. One of the things we don't know is whether this is contemporary or not. So I think these inter these human interactions that we're having seem to make it contemporary, but we don't know what level of like, if we're supposed to imagine this is in the future or something like that, that isn't really clear to me. So I feel like we're in the present. He's talking to the bartender. And then we learn a little bit about the surrogate process. And then the pages are done. Wonderful, Polly. All right. So what was your take on those pages? And then we'll go to Cece. I was honestly just blown away on a line level. Like I thought the writing was so, so well done. So introspective. Yeah, just so compassionate and self-aware in, in all of the good ways. I think I read some lines as I was going through here. But yeah, I just felt like, you know, I'll read you a couple more. One of the lines was, he often felt like a passenger in his own body, his legs on autopilot and his eyes only peripherally aware of the passing lights and buildings and trees that seemed to dash by him as they did outside the window of a fast moving car. And invariably, inevitably, his legs would take him to the river on the edge of the island city. And so all three of the queries today have talked about somebody walking and have talked about somebody moving and moving through space. And I think we can see the difference of like the self-awareness and the quality of literary quality of that writing scene and that moving walking scene. I think, again, that was just absolutely, absolutely strong writing. There was a lot of complicating factors for me. As I said, I'm still not clear on exactly how he imagines his relationship to be with this child. There's a line here that says, so long as he could find something of his wife's in the baby, he would love her and love her forever. But again, it's never talked about whether it'll be parental love or romantic love or and maybe this character doesn't know that. And that's also okay. But I think the query letter again has has to lay out for us exactly what's gonna what's gonna come in that sense. But I mean, I really felt that this writer did a really phenomenal job on a, on a line level. I thought it was very well done. Great, Carly. Yeah, and what Carly just said there is an important distinction between what the writer reveals in the query letter and in opening pages, because it's okay for the reader not to know in the opening pages where this is going. It's fine for the character not to know where this is going, because remember, that makes us ask questions. It makes us start to like feel a bit something's off and we feel uncomfortable and we keep reading to find out, but certainly... That's something the author will know and should be disclosing in those opening pages. Okay, Cece, what was your take in the query letter? I really, really liked the first line. I thought it was a really great 
first line. And then, which I know is perhaps different from what Carly's saying, when I realized that the surrogate was still pregnant, I was like, oh no, is this the best place to start? Because if we're going to get two arcs, that means we're going to jump in time. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Tons of books span generations, like The Vanishing Half, for example, and it works really well. But I don't know. I was kind of anxious to get to the part where the child already existed. Maybe she was already walking around and running around. So that anxiety isn't a bad thing because it means that I'm curious to see it. But I do, it made me wonder, oh my gosh, I wonder how long this will span. And I had all these questions, which again, brings us to the point of if the query letter had more information, I would know, right? A note I had is, and Carly did touch on this, is we're not sure if this is like 2065, right? Like a future or just not specified at all, just, I guess, a different world. There is a mention of, and this is the line on page three, it would allow him to see her as an ordinary human being and not a freak of nature as mass media had so keenly portrayed her kind. So you're suggesting that we're living in a world where clones are a thing, like a common thing, not just like the ability to clone, but like we're living in a world where clones are walking around. Is that the case? Like, I was curious about that. That curiosity, again, a very good thing. I was also very curious about what happened to Elizabeth, right? Again, curiosity, a very good thing. I did have poking hole questions because I don't think it would be me enjoying something if I didn't have poking hole questions. One of them is he's saying that he's studying his wife based on letters and journals. So he knows exactly what the clone of his wife slash daughter, kind of creepy, would want for the first 18 years. How does, like, what, what child has journals for so long? Like, for the first 18 years? Like, I don't see how, like, letters, she kept the letters, the letters she sent? I don't see how that would, would work. Not saying I can't be convinced, I'm just saying that made no sense to me. Another thing is, this guy didn't know that Eliza and Elizabeth was, like, like Eliza was short for Elizabeth? This is an intelligent person. Come on, yes, you did. I don't buy that. Third thing I don't really get, and this might be like the dystopian, well, not dystopian, the alternate world we live in. On page four, we get a mention of how he used to be able to talk to women, right? Like he wasn't a Casanova, but whenever he approached a woman, this woman in question would see the ring on his finger. And once they noticed the ring, they saw him as simply a neighbor offering to help carry the groceries, meaning they saw him as harmless, inoffensive, safe. And now, when we have a scene with this, whenever he approaches a woman, a woman kind of feels scared. So, first of all, is this a magical, pretty color land alternative universe where married men are harmless because Harvey Weinstein was married and I don't buy that? So again, if this is intentional, I would be poking holes if this were my client. I'd be like, what, what's, what is even going on here? As a very minor note, there's a word missing on the sentence that starts with, Charles replied that wife was not the woman carrying the baby. It's a super minor note. Please don't worry about it. I don't think that there's a book out there that doesn't have a typo. And just for our listeners, something on plausibility, especially when you're world building, your world can be anything you damn well want it to be. So long as all the decisions that you're making are very deliberate and you give sort of justification or plausibility so that the logic of the world makes complete sense. So that's incredibly important in this kind of genre. Was there anything else you wanted to add, Carly? No, I was just going to say, I'll, I will request this and I will want to read the whole thing because I have a lot of questions, good and bad, but a lot of good ones because I don't know, I think the writing here is pretty extraordinary. Wonderful. Yay! Okay, well, uh, thank you both for that. And now Carly and I are going to today's guest. 
we just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and Francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of one hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over, and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six-module, 10-hour course with all my knowledge, and that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com slash course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course.
Today's guest is the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, and Amazon Charts bestselling author of Where the Forest Meets the Stars and The Light Through the Leaves. She worked as an endangered bird specialist in Illinois before she became a writer. Originally from Chicago, she now lives in rural Florida with her husband and as many birds, butterflies, and wildflowers as she can lure to her land. It's my pleasure to welcome Glendy Vandera. Glendy, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bianca. And thank you so much for having me, both of you, Carly and Bianca. I appreciate it. Yeah, so for our listeners today, you've got a special treat. It's not just Glendy, it's Carly as well, who is Glendy's agent. So Carly's going to kick off our interview for us. Hello, everybody. We're here for a very special treat. We're going to cover career and craft in this interview with Glendy Vanderop. I know Bianca did such a wonderful introduction. I'm going to add a little bit more you know, flavor to our introduction for Glendy and a personal touch. She has an upcoming novel. It's called The Oceanography of the Moon. It launches in March 2022. And between both books, print, and E, she has sold over 1.2 million copies of her book and has them in circulation around the English-speaking world. Her words have also been translated into 30 languages. And as you know, she's my wonderful, talented client. So I have to get on my soapbox and, and do my celebratory agent dance for that. So, Glendy, I just want to go back to the beginning for a minute. So, way back in January 2017, I had a query and a manuscript come across my desk. It was called The Infinite Nest that I fell absolutely in love with. I still love that title to this day, I'll be honest. But can you walk us through the next steps of your publishing journey? Do you want to talk us through your point of view, kind of of what happened, you know, from that from that book's path to manuscript to publication? Well, there were a lot of steps. I could I probably can't talk about them all, but I think the most memorable is probably your phone call, the call as they call it. And that was an amazing day. Surreal, exciting. <laughs> And then once I had signed with you, I don't know if you're okay with me glossing through the rest. There were a few other agents, but we I let them know and every, that all went okay. And so you and I worked on editing the book. And I think one of the best main things you did was cut back. Gabe's backstory was a little too heavy. You reminded me that Joe was my main character, Joe and Ursa really. And so that really helped a lot. And at this point, you and I had a lot going on. I had just moved and downsized and I I think you had just found out you were having a baby, didn't you, right during all of this? And so for whatever reason, maybe because of all of that, we didn't, or you didn't pitch it to publishers until the summer. And there were quite a few publishers interested, but it got a little messy. And I don't know if I'm going to talk too much about that. <laughs> because it, it does get a little strange, as, as Carly knows. But I'll just say that in the end, I decided to go with Alicia Clancy at Lake Union, because she was the most supportive of all the editors of my book. And one of the things I did like about her was that she wasn't asking for really big changes. Her changes were quite doable, and they weren't going to mess up the story too much. And so then we, I have to say that Alicia and Lake Union did a great job getting this book together fantastic editing, great cover art. The whole process was so exciting for me that first time. And 
I think a big step in this book being published was getting the book into Amazon first reads. And that was fantastic because it I'm a complete, I was a complete unknown and it really got my name and the book out there into the world. But before the book was even published, it had thousands of positive reviews. So I do think that Amazon first reads is a great program for debut authors. And then the rest is history. I was super proud that year that my book finished third in the Goodreads Best Fiction 2019. So if there's anything else you want to know about the process, that's about it. No, it was a it was a roller coaster after that. Yeah, we had so many positive reviews and ratings and it was wonderful. I think also your book, I mean, what drew me to your writing is a number of things. I've talked about this on social media a lot, but I love the connection to nature, which is obviously a huge theme, you know, in your in your scientific background and your writing. And you also, you know, you blend a few genres. And sometimes writers who blend a few genres don't always find that straightforward path to success. So it was so gratifying for me who love who loves a little bit of genre blending to see your book just skyrocket um, out of the gates. So my next question for you is millions of writers hope for the kind of success that you have had out of the gate here. And I know obviously you did too, just like every other writer. But can you tell us a little bit about having a really successful first book, how that impacted some subsequent you know, projects or, or thought processes or, or how did that impact you? And that, that really is a good question because that has come up quite a bit. It did affect my writing. And in all honesty, that surprised me as a newly published author. I had this feeling, I would have to say, of expectation because the first book was so beloved. And I had a lot of people actually, even including, I think you and Alicia, my editor, had mentioned a possibility of a sequel. And so there was this sort of pressure to write something similar. And I found that that was a constraint on my creative process that I'd never had before because I used to just write whatever excited me. And I wrote eclectically everything from science fiction to romantic suspense, you know, and so it was, it was a little tough to feel that pressure that I had to write within a little box when I never had to do that before. And I would have to say that I'm probably still struggling with that a little bit. You you did it so masterfully. I mean, I think when you have such a rocket ship of a first book, it makes perfect sense. There's those expectations on you. But you continue to have your fans just belovedly obsessed with your next books. And I know everybody's really excited for your, your third one coming up. So you know what? I am here to tell you, you did deliver and we're really proud of you. Thank you. All right. My next question for you. So a lot of writers grapple with this whole kind of how do we how do we interact with social media? How do we use social media effectively? And for you, you know, you really naturally gravitated towards Instagram because you post such lovely pictures of birds and, you know, where you live in Florida and just how picturesque it is. Uh, what is your relationship with social media like and, and how has it evolved over your career so far? Well, as, as you know, and I was so glad you didn't hold it against me, I had zero social media when we met. I was so busy with, I was parenting, I had a, the house, and but I was also creating, you know, still working on my craft. And so when I did go on the internet, I'm not a big internet person. I was learning about my craft. I was studying how to get published. And so back then I didn't feel I had the time for social media. But once we had a published date for Where the Force Meets the Stars, you suggested I try one at least. I did gravitate toward Instagram for the reasons you said. And I don't think your typical author on Instagram, most authors I've noticed post pretty much about their book 
books and other people's books. I'm a little uncomfortable at truthfully rating other authors. To me, it's like putting a rating on a soul. These books come from your soul. So if I do talk about another author's book, I do mostly just say whatever is positive. That's all, you know. And I do want to try to do more of that in 2022 to talk more about what I'm reading. But mostly I work, I post, I would have to say about my nature connection because that's such a important part of my writing and who I am actually. And speaking of social media, that's where a lot of your fans kind of connect with you and find you. What do you find that your relationship is like with your fans? Do you zoom into book clubs? Do you keep in touch mostly on social media? And you know, how do your fans interact with you? And, and how do you find that relationship? When my book first came out, I, I was astonished to find out that people were writing to me. Like, I didn't know that happened. And I can't even tell you how touching some of these letters were. A lot of them were about people who had heartbreaking pasts and they would tell me my book could help them heal. I've actually ha- heard that about The Light Through the Leaves as well. And so I have the impression most authors don't do this, but I read most of them and I answer many of them. I, I answer letters, especially the ones that took a lot of courage to write where somebody told me, you know, I suffered from depression and something very deep in their life. And so that has been kind of a surprising aspect of being an, a published author. And as for other interactions, I do have made friends on Instagram and we do message each other sometimes. And that's been kind of a something I wouldn't have expected either, readers who become friends. I, I really do like that. And then as for book clubs, initially I did go to in person to a few book clubs in my area. Then when the lockdown came, I did start zooming into book clubs. And I know the pandemic was it is, I can't say it was anymore, is awful. But I think Zoom book clubbing was a really positive thing that came out of the pandemic because recently. I was zoomed into a little, you know, into a little town in Newfoundland. I was in somebody's living room talking about books. I mean, to me, that's absolutely miraculous. So I do, I do enjoy zooming into book clubs. It's a lot of fun. Well, there you go. Book clubs. You can get Glendy for 2022. She is happy to zoom with you. So that's it for my side of the questions. I'm going to turn it over to Bianca, our craft specialist and, and let her kind of, yeah, dig deeper into the craft side of things. Awesome, Connie. Thank you. Glendy, I finished the Oceanography of the Moon this weekend and I absolutely loved it. For our listeners, you're in for an absolute amazing, amazing ride with this book. It's just such a lovely experience. So well written, but also a page turner. And that's extremely, extremely rare. I find that books tend to be literary in terms of lovely language or they tend to be page turners. But this was both, and I learned so much along the way as well, which is an added bonus. So thank you for that, Glendy. So my questions are about this book in terms of craft. The first is that you said in the acknowledgements that you decided to rewrite the manuscript and you thank Carly for kind of being patient with you during that process. So can you tell us more about that? Like at what stage did you decide to write it? Why? What changed in the process? And what extent was the rewrite? 
Well, the, I, I almost didn't put that in the acknowledgements, by the way. I, I was a little nervous about doing that, but I finally did because I think I would like other readers to know there is hope for that sort of lost manuscript that's sitting on your computer. And so what happened with that book, and this sort of touches back to Carly's question about how my success affected my writing and how I felt I needed to follow the first book. So before I wrote The Light Through the Leaves, and even before Where the Forest Meets the Stars had come out, so you have to understand, I didn't even know what the reaction to that book was going to be. I wrote a book and that was the oceanography of the moon. And I was, as I said, I used to write very eclectically. And so I wrote this book much darker than Where the Forest Meets the Stars. It had a character in it whose past was a little bit maybe too delinquent. He was unlikable, I would have to say. <laughs> but it made for a huge character arc. And I was kind of playing with that. Like, how far can you go as a writer to make an unlikable person? How much can you go with that and still have them likable by the end? So Carly and my editor weren't wild about this book following, specifically following Where the Forest Meets the Stars. So by this time, we kind of knew the reception to Where the Forest Meets the Stars was very positive. People wanted something similar. The story was honestly a little too dark. It also had a few other issues that still a little too complicated to go into. So I put that book aside and later I wrote The Light Through the Leaves. And so, you know, working on a book takes a long time. And during the editing of The Light Through the Leaves, the pandemic hit and the lockdown. And 2020 was such a terrible year. There were so many horrific, heartbreaking events in that year. So by the time I finished writing The Light Through the Leaves, I, I mean, not writing, editing and getting it ready for publication, I was feeling pretty crushed. My creative juices were not flowing. <laughs> we're locked in. We can't go anywhere and talk to people, see new places. So it felt very natural for me to pull the oceanography of the moon out because there is a story I can immediately jump into. And so I, there were so many things in that book that I loved <laughs> and I just really wanted to resurrect it. And so I rewrote it pretty extensively and then showed it to Carly and Alicia and they decided to accept it, but it did go through quite a bit more to make Vaughn more likable. Vaughn, Vaughn had his issues. <laughs> My husband to this day liked the old Vaughn. He liked the more uh, edgy guy, <laughs> but he reads in a different genre than this. So you can't really do that. So, and getting back to Carly's earlier question, it really does sort of, you know, have to fit the mood and the uh, genre, the book club fiction genre. You can't just suddenly throw this dark book, you know, at your reader. So, so I, I think a lot, you know, a lot of help. And I think the book actually was beautifully resurrected. I, I think uh, I'm really happy with it. Yeah. I mean, I, I loved Vaughn from the beginning and I feel your frustration because I'm perfectly fine with reading characters who I don't like in the beginning because I'm fully expecting a character arc. And I sort of find it frustrating that we have to give readers these likable characters because I'm like, have more empathy, man. You know, some people have gone through rough times. You should just be on board with people who are a bit prickly or have troubles in the right. beginning or dark and, you know, go through the journey with them and you're going to see them come out on the other side. But, you know, again, I can see from the side of publishing why you had to do that. And obviously it was a phenomenal rewrite because at no point was I saying this is a problematic character or I didn't like him or, 
you know, whatever the case may be is. So so that goes to my next question. In terms of backstory, you know, we talk about this so much on the podcast. So both of your characters have secrets in their histories that are alluded to throughout the book. At the halfway point, we still don't know what these backstories are. And this is what keeps us turning all the pages. And you did it phenomenally well, because often when I get to that point with some writers, I put my hands up and I'm like, okay, I've been manipulated beyond exhaustion and I just can't be bothered with all these teasings anymore. So I'm actually just going to put the damn book down. I don't care. And that never happened with you. So could you give our listeners some kind of understanding as to how to tease out that backstory to keep them turning pages, to maintain the pacing and tension, but without making a reader feel like they're being manipulated and without making them give up. How did you do that? Well, and so I think it wasn't really something I, you know, I plan when I do that because there was the same situation in where the forest meets the stars with Ursa's secret, right? And then Gabe had his secret. And so I think what's really critical for that is having characters that people really feel. You know, you have to write this character that people care about, that they sympathize with, even if he's unlikable, (laughs) you know, there has to be some level of connection. And I think there are their actions have to be very organic so that when the, some of those secrets do come out, it can't sound like it has to just be organic, attached to their backstory, very natural. And so I think the reader, if the reader is feeling the strong connection, if your characters are very real and, and organic, that they care, they the, the secret becomes as ex- exciting to them rather than annoying. You know, it's like, I'm so excited to see what is going on. I can't stop turning the pages. And not only that, they're excited, but they're excited to see how the other characters are going to react. So if they care about everybody, wow, there's something big going on. And they, we know it's probably something not good. <laughs> you know, how, what is this going to do to their relationship? What is, how are they going to react? Is it going to be the end? You know, how big is this secret? And so I think the key is just getting really deep into your characters and trying to make them real so that people care. Yeah, great answer. Because I feel like because it was so organic and because the revealing of the backstory was so intrinsic to each character, that's what made it not be frustrating. So, um, and, and for our listeners, you know, Glendy has got two books behind her. And so this comes a bit more instinctually to writers as they get more experience. But certainly this is where your beta readers and your writing groups will come in handy. They could tell you, you know, this could have been withheld for a bit longer or you withheld this too long until you get to the point where Glendy's at, where you just kind of know how to do that naturally. Right. Then something else I want to discuss, Glendy, is the point of view. So you've written the oceanography of the moon in two first person POVs that alternate. The chapters are quite short in each person's perspective. One is a man and one is a younger woman. What challenges did those pose for you to get their voices to be distinct? And also, how did you decide which scene or which chapter had to be told from which character's perspective? Because you often shift points of view in what could essentially be one self-contained scene. And that's what I loved, how we're seeing one scene play out 
from this character's perspective and then the rest of the scene plays out from the next character's perspective. So how did you decide on that? Making them distinctive was tough because one of the biggest parts of this book is that there's this immediate connection between Riley and Vaughn and you start to realize these similarities. So, you know, they both are from Chicago. They both are hiding something. They both live these almost surreal inner lives as a way of coping with pain. They're both in pain. So considering the similarities between them, their voices were going to sound pretty similar. And early on, one of the distinctions with Vaughn was, as I said, he was quite snide. He, he was he was a little rather unlikable at first. But once I toned him down a bit, I would have to say that their points of view did merge a bit. But in a way, I have to say they were supposed to because there, there had to be this this similarity, these these connections between them. And so I I think that what I thought was one of the main things that would happen would be that the reactions to what happens would be one of the main ways to separate their points of views, the feel, the tone of their point of view. And as for the alternation, I alternated evenly, Riley, Vaughn, Riley, to keep stability for the reader. And I I started with Riley and ended with Riley because for own voices reasons, I felt like she was my more prominent character. And I think that just the way they react to scenes is probably one of the main the main ways that they're distinguished. And as for, you know, within a scene and the scene changing, the, the point of view, the, the short chapters that you're talking about mainly happened when they met. And I felt it was very important at that point to get the reaction because he's doing some things that seem a little sketchy. She's doing some things that are confusing him. And so you have to kind of go back and forth and say, okay, here's what he's thinking. Now here's what she's thinking. But then in other parts of the book, the chapters are much longer. Longer. Yeah. And and for our listeners, the point Andy's just made is brilliant. So for those of you who are considering omniscient narrator point of view, so that we can get in two characters' heads in one scene, so we know what he's thinking and what she's thinking as they respond to each other's kind of sketchy or weird behavior, that confuses the reader. It results in this kind of head jumping, head hopping thing that makes a reader kind of feel dizzy. Whereas, you know, what Candy did is an amazing solution to that. Have short chapters alternating from each character's perspective. It could be the exact same scene. All you want to stay away from is doubling up. So giving the reader the exact same information from two characters' perspectives. So Candy would run through a scene up until the point where X happened. And then from X forwards, it moves to the different character. So we're getting different information in the same scene, which was really awesome. All right, so I'm going to just be able to ask one more question, Glendy. So here we go. What was the benefit of making the point of view's first person present instead of, for example, uh, third person past? I know this was the first time you've written in present tense. So again, tell us what challenges that posed for you. Yeah, well, so I act, I did have a particular reason for doing that. As you know, climate change is, is sort of a, a, a layer in this story. And I often think about how human beings think about time, like our understanding. Our actually, We live these frenetic short lives, really, in comparison to, you know, geological time, obviously. And so even the distant future and the distant past just are very hard for us to grasp. And, and our lives are moving 
moving fast. And, and just, I think that that has a lot to do with why people are having trouble grasping the enormity of the problem of human-induced climate change. And as you know, this isn't a huge topic. It isn't the main topic in the book. It's sort of a side topic. But I did present tense, first-person present tense, to give an immediacy to the characters' lives. I wanted them to, you to feel this immediate you know, how do you grapple with things? There used to be a little bit more in the book about that, where how we're living our lives, where we care about our futures and, and, and our money and our kids. And how, how can you tackle solutions to climate change? And Kieran's fossils and clock parts play into the symbolism of this. Like he mixes them. He's the young generation. He mixes them together. He's fine. You know, it's almost, it, for me, it was almost like finding solutions by mixing these different versions versions of time. That's how we're going to have to look at the future, I think. Yeah, I don't, I, I really worked for this book. And I loved Kieran's character. And I loved how upset he was by knowing about climate change, because I don't think we think enough about how much this affects young people in terms of us handing over this planet to them. And then being that they're being told that we've completely messed it up. And their whole futures are going to look a certain way. And it must be extremely anxiety inducing for them. And I love that you so eloquently conveyed that because it, it, it gives us a lot to think about. Carly? One thing I wanted to add, yes, it's been wonderful to hear Glendy's craft side of things. I just kind of wanted to touch on some of the reasons why why I never wanted to scrap this book because Glendy was talking about like, we thought about it, what are we going to do with it? And there were so many reasons to me why I always wanted this book to come out. It was just, again, I was thinking about like, what's the order and the, you know, the craft right. and the brand and, you know, so many things. And, you know, I think what Glendy is so skilled at and so amazingly talented at is just our ability to feel, you know, like she makes us want this bad guy to go good. You know, she, like the amazing depth of love that not only the characters have, but the characters have for their planet and their future. That love is so deep. And this book is just so, so, so beautiful for that reason. So I'm so glad it's finally finding its home and its Thank readers. You, Carly. And I, and I very much appreciate you uh, sticking through it and, and helping me make it better. I really, really glad I rewrote this book i i think yeah. it's beautiful i think it's it's i think it's perfect to be my third book and and for our listeners you know it's this kind of genre blending story but also can tackle huge important themes and that's amazing to see that we don't just have to go it has to be a frivolous love story or it has to be one thing or the other it can be a few different things and it can make the reader really grapple with really serious issues, which is which is the best kind of book. So it's, it's going to be out on the 22nd of March, The Oceanography of the Moon. Pre-order it. Pre-orders are so important for authors. You won't be sorry. Thank you so much, Glendy and Carly, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It's been fun. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. 
To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.